Motos and Friends this week brings you senior editor Nick DeSena's perspective on the newly launched Aprilia 660 Tuareg ADV bike. Nick rode the bike in Sardinia and seemed impressed with Aprilia's take on the middleweight section of the adventure bike market. It's reasonably priced, so if you're looking for this type of machine, the Tuareg is definitely worth some of your time. The second segment is brought to you by editor-at-large Neil Bailey. The story of the now sadly defunct Modus Motorcycles, brainchild of Brian Case, is fascinating. Brian designed not just a well-engineered V4 engine, but also the entire chassis and motorcycle parts to wrap around it too. 200 Modus Motorcycles were made, and Brian tells us a story of how it all played out. From us all here at Ultimate Motorcycling, we hope you enjoy this episode. So we're going to talk today about the Aprilia Touareg. How do you pronounce it? Well, you can pronounce it Tuareg, Tuareg, or, you know, if you're from the American South, Targ. But, uh... <laughs> didn't, didn't Volkswagen or don't Volkswagen have an SUV of the same name? They do. Uh, Aprilia owns the trademark uh, to that, um, or they owned it long before VW ever did. So oh. they're in the clear. Okay. All right. But essentially, essentially, it's the same thing. And I, I believe a Tuareg, isn't it a, um, a sort of Moroccan, um, you know, Bedouin kind of character, aren't they? Tuareg. Um, isn't it? Yeah. They, you know, they explain the the Tuareg people, um, okay. you know, they're, they're essentially like a, uh, like a Berber ethnic group. Um, right. That's sort of roaming, roving sort of, sort of a desert dwellers, I think, aren't they? Yeah. A, a, okay. I would say a nomadic. Nomadic. Uh, that's what I was looking for. Yeah. And they're, they're often represented, um, you know, with this, uh, traditional blue, garb which um is represented on the on the bike as well um oh cool um, okay you know, they they wear other colors obviously but the the blue is a kind of a, a cultural staple cool okay so clearly the tuareg is a an adventure bike built to thrash around the desert is that is that what you did on this thing um no, I mean we we did pretty typical adventure riding. We didn't do any any hardcore off roading in the the Moroccan sands or anything like that. But no, we we got a a, a pretty well rounded taste of what the average adventure rider will do. So we spent a lot of time on the road, hitting um, some twisty roads on the island of Sardinia, which is right off the coast of Italy in the Mediterranean Sea. And then we also, you know, went around and. Um, hit some fire roads and uh just for a, a little extra taste at the the end of the ride when we were done doing video and things like that uh we went off off onto the uh the hotel kind of campus kind of tucked away in a corner and uh where the aprilia staff created a little turn track um, with a few little bumps and jumps and things like that just to go and you know give it some more more uh you know, off-road um, testing, as you will. Okay. But really, we just did a, a pretty well-rounded adventure ride, you know, um, 
and uh, you know, that's that's how we spent our eight hours in the saddle on on the Touareg uh, 660. Sounds great. Okay, so so as the Aprilia 660, it's clearly got the same motor as the street bike and the and the naked upright. Um, is that right? What what is the motor on the 660? Just refresh everyone's memory here. Yeah, so it's the 660 platform that was introduced with the RS660 and then the Tuono 660. So it is their middleweight uh, parallel twin engine. The core differences between what is found in the Touareg 660 and the RS and the, the Tuono, um, you know, it's just about making this power plant a little bit more adept at riding off-road. Um, mm -hmm. So to that end, it has a new cam, which... Uh, accommodates a new tune as well. And it lowers peak horsepower when compared to the street bikes to 80 uh, horsepower. And it also raises torque just a little bit. You get about two or three points of torque um, to 51 foot pounds of torque. But the, the key thing is, is that it's changed the power band pretty significantly and brought a lot of the torque much lower in the RPM, uh, RPM range. So really what it's focusing on is delivering low-end grunt right off the line, a lot more mid-range, and you still get you know, a decent amount of top-end power that you would have found on the street bikes. Um, you know, some of the other changes include a different airbox, obviously, because it's a new bike, completely different platform. So that's going to be uh, necessary right off the top. It also comes with a quick change air filter. You can just pop it off from the top of the... Um, the fuel tank with a couple screws and you're good to go there. That's a nice touch. Yeah, especially if, if you're riding off-road frequently, depending on the conditions, the dustier it is, the more frequently you're gonna have to clean and change the air filter. Right. The other really crucial change uh, you know, is a functional one. So it does have a new oil pan. It's a low profile oil pan to accommodate, um, or not accommodate, I should say create a, uh, 9.4 inch ground clearance which is uh, quite competitive if you look at the the more off-road oriented uh, adventure bikes and then the last change um that's truly noticeable is um you know you have a shorter first gear and then shorter final drive gearing overall uh so they drop two teeth on the counter shaft sprocket it really kind of perks things up and uh you know between the tune which really focuses on delivering torque and mid-range performance and as well as shorter gearing when compared to the street bikes, it feels much more um, kind of perky off the bottom. And that really helps in off-road situations as well as on-road. Okay. Awesome. What's the, uh, what's the throttle response like? I mean, I, I assume it's got similar modes to the other two bikes. Uh, it does. They're all renamed. You kind of fit the, the Toreg theme. So um, you know, fueling is spot on in, I would say, you know, 90% of the cases. You have uh, three preset ride modes. Those are urban, explore, and then your off-road mode. Urban is essentially a rain map. It's got a really soft throttle response. Explore is a, I would say it's just a step shy of the, the sport modes on the street bike. So it's, you know, sporty enough without ever becoming snatchy or anything like that. Um, it's actually the sort of perfect pairing for that bike on the street where, you know, it, it feels, you know, uh, aggressive without really taking that extra step that a, a typical 
you know, a Prilia sport bike would. So it's, you know, just right there and you can really play with the engine, enjoy it, you know, get a sampling of its, uh, you know, street bike heritage and racetrack heritage, but without taking it a step too far. And that's what I really enjoy about that mode in particular. The off-road map has a lot more softening um, for the initial crack of the throttle, because if you're getting bounced around off-road, you know, you might introduce throttle um, inadvertently. So uh, that really helps in off-road situations. The one kind of weird thing that I noticed in a couple other of uh, our colleagues is that when you're riding on the street in the off-road map, which you'll often do if you just ride off a trail or something like that, can um, actually become a little bit snatchy at sort of mid-range RPM. Say if you're coming off the apex and you start rolling it on, it's a bit of a hit sometimes. Um, so that was a little bit surprising. Um, and then you have an individual mode, which you can do whatever you want with. Um, again, if you sort of combine the lowest engine braking settings and the most aggressive map, it can be a little bit snatchy, but the fix is to just go to the middle settings and it's fine. Well, not fine, it's actually uh, quite good. But yeah, it's, um, you know, combined with those, those, those engine map settings and throttle responses, the, the engine's great. It's just nice and perky, fun. You know, it revs out nicely. It doesn't lose steam like a lot of parallel twin engines. It will kind of taper off and when you're really up top, but course, yeah. I would say maybe 9,000 RPM. But by then, you know, you're, you're going 100 miles an hour and kind of losing the plot a little bit for street riding. <laughs> yeah, you know, on the street, it's really fun. Off-road, you know, because of its, its tractability, it has more low ends, more mid-range. Um, it's just a very user-friendly engine. And I think that's something that people that are coming into the ADV market and getting their feet wet with off-road riding, they might be accomplished and experienced street riders, but this is the first time they're taking things in the dirt. That sort of tractability is really going to appeal to a lot of riders out there. Um, so it, it never gets over your head. So that's the, the crucial thing, whether you're on the street or, you know, off-road and it stays engaging for experienced riders. Talking of electronics, can you turn the ABS off or at least turn off the ABS at the rear when you're off in off-road mode? Yeah. Yeah. So the electronics package does do that right out of the gate for you. If you are in the off-road mode, Okay. disables ABS right off the top and it maintains ABS in the front. However, you can disable it completely should you choose to do that. Just one long press and you're good to go. Okay. Um, other electronic aids come in the form of uh, two-channel ABS. So you have um, basically the what I would surmise as the the on-road ABS mode and then the off-road ABS mode. Okay. Um, and then you have four-level adjustable traction control. You have engine braking management, throttle maps. So most of what you'd see in the APRC package. Okay. Now the the one crucial observation about the electronics package overall is that we do lack an IMU. So we're not working with cornering ABS or lean angle sensitive traction control, um, unlike what's offered on the RS660 and then offered as an optional uh, accessory on the Tuono 660. That's just not offered on the Touareg and that's really just to keep costs down. You know, despite the fact that we're not using an IMU, the ABS and TC systems work, I would say quite well. Um, especially when I'm talking about the ABS. So 
ABS on road, I never had any issues at all. Okay. It just totally fine off road and thinking about the lack of IMU, I was a little bit worried, you know, maybe it will engage prematurely. That's not the case. I really enjoyed the front wheel ABS. Um, I could brake as hard as I wanted to, um, you know, to the point where it's like, hmm, you know, I think it's got a little bit more, more in it than I'm actually comfortable giving. And, you know, as a, you know, fun fact, when you're really hammering on the brakes, the hazard lights will, will flash up you know, to warn the people behind you. <laughs> wow. Okay. Just something that we've seen on a couple other bikes, like uh, some Hondas do it these days. And um, there's some other models that definitely do it. But, um, you know, it's funny when you're chasing your buddies on a fire trail and everyone hammers on the brakes into a corner and there's hazard lights everywhere <laughs> you know all the lights are flashing and stuff it's uh yeah yeah it's 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 a good warning system but it's also kind of fun because you're like oh okay well someone's using brakes and then the um the traction control system uh you know four levels they're they're pretty progressive in terms of how they they intervene so level four is the most extreme um, and then as you bump your way down, you know, it lets the leash out. And in level one, I found that you could do more than a modest slide in the dirt. Um, as long as you're not going over anything that's sort of rocky and undulating and really, really creates wheel spin. Um, you know, you could do a, a pretty competent slide and, you know, look like a hero. Um, but again, with that tractability of the engine, I think experienced riders will eventually just start turning off the TC. But the important thing there is that riders that aren't as comfortable can use the TC and, you know, start getting their footing. And, and then maybe later on down the line, you know, a few months, handful of rides, a year or two, whatever, and depending on conditions, you know, turn off TC and they're good to go. Um, but overall, I think, Aprilia did a good job with the traction control. Um, the main observation I have about that is that it doesn't cut power aggressively. I mean, think back to way, the way that TC systems used to work in the mid and early 2000s, where it would cut power and it'd just do this like cut, 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 right. sort of thing. Sure. In this case, I would say it's more akin to when it senses that there's excessive wheel spin, it basically just curbs the power just below whatever uh, would initiate that wheel spin. So you don't actually lose forward momentum. And that's a really critical thing when you're riding off-road. Say if you're doing a small hill climb, rear wheel starts spinning, you're still going to be propelled forward, albeit with much less throttle than you were uh, applying. So that's a, a really important thing that I, I, I want our listeners to understand. Okay. That sounds quite. That sounds quite advanced. Actually, Val Valentino Rossi could have done with that on his MotoGP bike, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but anyway, okay. That sounds great. Oh, all right, good. Okay, well, moving on to the chassis. What sort of suspension does it come with, and and were you impressed? Yeah, this is where Aprilia really kind of flexed their their street prowess. I would say, you know, you have fully adjustable KYB suspension. It is a tubular steel frame and then you have an aluminum swing arm uh, all new aluminum swing arm uh, to match and 
as a fun fact, the RS660, the Tuono 660, and the Toreg 660 were developed concurrently. And what I mean by that is they were developed simultaneously and released over a period of time because if Aprilia just released all their new bikes at once, well, they would have nothing to do for the next few years. But uh, <laughs> right. swamp the market. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. Yeah, 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 I get it. So the the engine is modular in a sense where they knew it was going to be placed into a lot of different applications. So things like the uh, swing arm pivot point that is adjustable between models without updating um, the engine cases, which is typically what you'd see for a completely different application. In this case, it's somewhat, somewhat similar to the RSV4 where they just change the pivot point slug and elevate the pivot point to fit ADV geometry. Because as we know, street bikes riding off-road, well, they do terribly. So, you know, there's that. But to that end, um, we have a all new steel uh, chassis, which allows for much more flex than the aluminum chassis found on the, the 210 and RS 660. Then the, uh, the new swing arm, again, allows more flex feedback and sensitivity off-road. And, you know, with the, the fully adjustable suspension, what I noticed about the bike right away is that it, it just handles riding on the street incredibly well. It feels, it, this is going to be a buzzword from a lot of different reviews, but it feels super moto-esque. Um, you know, you have that long 9.4 inches travel, and you can really just pitch the thing onto its nose like a supermoto, you know, when you're going into a corner, get on the brakes, trail brake through there, and then just hammer on the throttle. So you can have a lot of fun riding this thing. So it's basically long travel suspension that is quite firm and well damped. I would say well damped, firm, not so much. It's actually very plush and controlled and everything about it is just well balanced. Um, but they really haven't put any sort of, uh, you know, I, I would say like, uh, the, the typical sporty damping, because again, you have all that suspension travel to use, so you might as well use it. I'm sure a lot of listeners have, are very familiar with ADV bikes and have ridden different ones. Um, but I would imagine there's not too many have ridden su super motos. So I'm just kind of curious what the nuance is between, a soup this the feeling with a supermoto suspension and chassis and just an adv bike what makes this sort of special in other words well it's 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 sort of the 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 mechanical grip that it creates um you know the the simple fact is is that 21 inch wheels so we're running a 21 inch wheel and an 18 inch rear typically don't inspire a lot of confidence when you're you're aggressively you know, switching through the canyons and stuff like that. You know, a, a 21 inch wheel just doesn't okay. necessarily have the same ability to create the same type of grip that a 17 inch wheel would. One, because the tire is smaller, you're dealing with a much larger wheel, uh, you know, it's narrower, you have different uh, gyroscopic forces in play, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. In this case, why it feels like a supermoto to me is because you're able to get a load of grip and a load of feedback through that front end to where that 21 inch wheel does not feel like a 21. I would say it's more like a 19. Interesting. Okay. And so it just 
it really digs into the corners on the street, you know, you can ride it aggressively. And so that's where the supermoto sort of vibe comes into play. Or you can just trundle along and not care. And, and you'll still have great feedback, great grip at both ends. And that's where it really impressed me. Um, now, a lot of that does translate to the, the off-road uh, experience as well, because it doesn't deflect you know, off of rocks and things like that. It's nice and stable. Um, and you, know, you don't have a lot of you know, pitching fore and aft as well. You know, again, it, you do have long travel suspension, so you will experience, you know, if you get on the brakes or get on the, the gas aggressively, that suspension will work, but there's not uncontrolled dive or anything like that. It's just sure. you're using 9.4 inches of travel. Wow, it sounds really good. In that case, I think they did a, a very, very good job. Wow, excellent. Okay. Um, obviously, the brakes are pretty good. I mean, I would imagine there's some flavor of Brembo, are they? Uh, yeah, Brembo, and uh, the the brakes are actually a little bit more of a talking point than you might think. Um, instead of going with the typical radial uh, systems that um, we've always associated with Acrylia because of street bikes, or at least for the past 30 years, um, they went with an axial setup, so axial lever and axial um, calipers up in the front. And that was for three particular reasons. One, it's cheaper. And they need to keep the MSRP down for this bike. Sure. Two, it's lighter. Uh, radial systems add more aluminum. You have a, a larger mounting bracket at the end of the fork stanchion, bigger caliper, et cetera, et cetera. And then the third component, and probably the most important for this conversation, is braking performance. The brakes in the front feel, it's a very progressive bike. It doesn't have anything that's really harsh and... Um, as responsive as a radial setup. And that's by choice. They didn't want the braking forces to just come on super strong. So you, you know, you hammer the front end and then lose grip when you're riding off-road. They wanted everything to be very, very friendly and uh, user-friendly for riders that might not have as much experience. And then when riders do have experience, they can hammer the brakes as much as they please. So power is there the feel is just much different from what I think Aprilia fans are accustomed to. Okay. So, you know, that's going to be something that will come down to personal preference. I liked the brakes as I liked the ABS system. Um, and I understand why they, they've made that choice. It's similar to what Yamaha did with the Tenere 700, where the braking force is subdued to kind of the, the other side of the fence where you could uh, desire a little bit more brake and Yamaha did that mainly because it doesn't have an off-road ABS setting so they're really trying to uh, curtail the the possibility of someone locking the front and tucking the front um, but Aprilia did a better job in that that category. I mean clearly what I'm hearing is that as a as a nice middleweight this is aimed at not necessarily sort of expert off-road riders um, it's really aimed at intermediate level people. If you're an expert, you'll have fun with it, but it is user-friendly and, and uh, uh, you know, um, it's gonna work with people that aren't necessarily full-on racer <clears throat> off-road guys. Yeah, I mean, I think you could look at it that way. If we look at its placement in the middle ADV segment overall, 
I think that perspective would apply to it. Um, I would extend it a little bit more broadly as well, but they're casting a wide net, like you're, you're saying. So you're getting people that are new to the ADV market, um, people that are initiated to the ADV market and like ADV stuff, and also, also experienced writers. Where I would say it fits, and to kind of support your narrative a little bit, is that the Yamaha Tenere probably sits at the bottom. Um, you know, it's a, a motorcycle that can ride off-road competently. It has some touring capability. Um, and it's also the most affordably priced at $10,000. The Touareg is, I would say, a step above that. And although we need a true comparison story to really nail down the finer points, I would say it does a handful of things better than the Tenere, especially when we're talking about on-road riding um, and its, its suspension off-road. And then you also have the electronics offerings. Um, now at the extreme end is the KTM Adventure R. And Aprilia engineers made it pretty clear that they weren't going for that. KTM has really planted their flag on the end-all be-all off-road machines. And that's sort of wearing the, the ready to race um, you know, branding on their sleeve aggressively. And they didn't want to push that hard in the off-road direction because it, it created too many compromises for the on-road experiences, which if we're honest, the ADVR is amazing off-road. However, that stiffer suspension kind of beats you up on the street and it's extremely tall and not exactly the most comfortable. Right. But if you're going to ride off-road, yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. So the Aprilia, the, so so the Tuareg definitely makes sense. Yeah. To me, it sounds like, like you said, it's going to have a broader appeal. Um, sure, you're going to lose a little bit, you know, in terms of outright focus in one area or another, but it's going to have a real broad appeal because it does everything well. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a well-rounded machine, and that's their goals. That was that was their goal with with this product is do something that can do a little bit of it all. You know, the ADV bikes often become Swiss army knives in the way that uh, sport touring bikes were the Swiss army knives of the eighties and nineties. You went to a track day, you went to a right. long ride, you, you commuted. Well, the ADV bike might not do the track day, but <laughs> it's going to go off-road competently. It's, you know, going to do commuting. It's going to do long tours and such and such. And to that end, the Touareg can tour it's quite comfortable when you're sitting down. It has this, um, you know, the seat height by the numbers is 33.8 inches, if I recall the spec sheet correctly. So that's pretty lofty. However, you're, you do have some suspension sag and I can actually get my boots on the ground, not flat, but stable enough. A lot of it's down to the width of the seat. If the seat right at the front, if, Correct. if the nose of the seat is relatively narrow, then your legs will reach the ground. So it's not just height, seat height alone. Exactly. And that's that's a crucial component of this bike is part of the whole mass centralization theme is everything's really packed in. So the engine itself is kicked up 10 degrees compared to the street bikes, the fuel tank. Um, if you look at photos, the fuel tank looks kind of bulbous and kind of off-road 80s Dakar style. <laughs> but in truth, most of the fuel is actually below the, the seat it's hidden in the frame it does come up out of the frame a little bit but the the chassis width and the seat width is incredibly narrow i mean it's it's edging towards dual sport um 
you know, width when that's straight up, that's a straight up dirt bike. <laughs> right. Um, so it's not quite as thin as that, but it's getting there. Okay. And that makes all the difference. You know, if you were to straddle um, a BMW, uh, you know, 1200 GS versus this thing, you will immediately appreciate the difference. Right. Um, okay. And that goes for all of the heavyweight adventure bikes, which brings me to my next point. Riding a middleweight adventure bike is far more uh, secure and comfortable, in my opinion, than the heavier weight bikes because you're dealing with 450 pounds. You can get your, your boots on the deck a little bit easier, just easier to manage overall. And that's something that really shines, whether you're talking about the Yamaha Tenere, this or the Adventure R, you know, off-road. But um, touring-wise, you know, you have a, a sizable fuel tank um, and you're going to get over... 200 miles to a tank so that's great and uh you know the seat's comfortable uh reach to those wide handlebars is nice and uh you know there is a little bit of engine buzz that comes through you know when you're really wringing its neck but they installed removable kind of rubber grommets in the foot pegs um to kind of quell most of that um but yeah it's it's pretty impressive in a lot of regards again there's some minor quibbles but eh, nothing too bad what's the uh, what's the wind protection like on it so non-adjustable windscreen the wind protection for someone of my size five foot ten inches tall works really well i think if you're a taller guy you might get outside the bubble but um Aprilia offers uh taller windscreens for for you guys so nice okay um so overall the ergonomics were pretty good the only one negative observation i have about the the motor is the fact that the radiator vents aim directly at the rider so while we were riding in chilly conditions which was nice i did feel a little bit of heat coming off the motor and if you're probably up in those 80 or 90 degree fahrenheit days and riding at slow speeds that could become an issue just something to keep an eye on does it come with sort of luggage or you know cruise control any of those kind of nice little coutrement as you like to say yeah, so cruise control, it, that's standard. Luggage is optional. Um, and you just have to unbolt the little side panels and then bolt everything in and it's good to go. Okay, nice. But yeah, standing, sitting, I would say it's a, a very comfortable machine. Um, that's that's one of the main things that they they really nailed is, you know, just sort of the, the on-road riding experience and that that it translates to the the comfort of it. Excellent. Um, what sort of tires does it come with? It's sort of 80-20, presumably? Yeah, yeah. It's, it, they're the Pirelli Scorpion Rally STR tires. Um, interestingly, on this trip, I really liked the, the off-road performance. We were riding in Sardinia, so you know it's island weather. We did get a little bit of rain, and there, there was some rain before uh, we showed up. So we got some hero dirt that was you know, damp, not soggy just kind of right at the mix and um the strs in southern california in really dry conditions i felt like the front never really had grip um or a lot of edge grip off road uh you know plenty of grip if you're breaking up straight up and down but off road just the edge grip wasn't as good as you know some knobbier competitors all starts to get a bit vague yeah yeah in this case it worked quite well on the road and off road and i think that kind of plays to Aprilia's geometry choices and their chassis design, as well as the fact that we had uh, complementary conditions for 
riding off-road. Again, it was wet, but not overly so. So we got some hero dirt in a lot of sections. We also got some mud and, you know, got to splash each other. So that was cool. <laughs> so you'd like splash somebody and then uh, and then dab your brake so you could like flash your hazards at them briefly. <laughs> yeah. Oh, sorry. Sorry. I didn't mean to run through that mud puddle at 80 miles an hour. I apologize. <laughs> um, no, I mean, we on some of those fire roads, you know, we, we kind of saw each other doing it and <laughs> it definitely happened once, twice, you know, I, I, I was a, both a, uh, right. a victim and perpetrator. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, sure. I'm sure it sounds like, it sounds like a real nice bike. What do you think of the, the sort of the styling on it? Is it, is it pretty acceptable or is there something, anything weird thrown in? I mean, Aprilia bikes always look good to me. Yeah, they've they've sort of struck this middle ground between a modern design, a purely modern design, I should say, and and something that references the original Touareg 600 win. Um, so it does have those throwback elements, like it has the larger fuel tank. It doesn't have a ADV beak, if you will, which I actually appreciate yeah, because I'm... all of them seem to have it. Um, right. But yeah, I I quite like the design, especially in the livery that we had, um, which let me pull up the long-winded name for that. So, uh -huh. hold on. Oh, okay. It's, um, yeah, the livery we had is the, with the blue, white, and red, that is the Indaco Tinglemust, which references the headdress of the, the Tuareg people. Um, it will set you back an additional 600 bucks, so a little pricey to look cool. The problem is, it's really cool looking. So, <laughs> so you're going to want to spend that. <laughs> okay. Well, talking of talking money, what's the sort of pricing like on this thing? Is it just out of this world, or is it some something reasonable? No, it's competitive. It's slightly above the Yamaha Tenere 700. Um, okay. Base MSRP is $11,999. So it's 2K more than the T7 and uh, about roughly 2K less than the Adventure R. Um, okay. Now, with all of the options that we had on our bike, we had the livery, which is 600 bucks, and that's a non performance enhancing livery. Although uh, a sales guy might say that it's faster than the black and the red one, um, <laughs> or, you know, black and yellow. and red and black one, whatever. And then we also had the optional quick shifter. So uh, up, up, down, uh, quick shifting. Okay. And that's 200 bucks. And I'd spring for that all day. Old delivery. That's going to come down to personal choice, but uh, a quick shifter and auto blipper for 200 bucks. Uh, I'd go for it. Definitely. Okay. So it sounds, sounds like a great bike. Sounds like you really enjoyed it. I, I really did enjoy this bike. And, um, you know, I think for the money, Aprilia's offering a very competitive, well-rounded package. Um, I can't wait for this thing to come in in February because I want to get Jess McKinley on the horn and uh, <laughs> grab the Tenere and maybe yeah. one of the one or two other of the middleweight ADV options and get out there and really put them head to head because I think I think the Aprilia is going to do quite well um, sure. with the sort of well-rounded nature that they they went for it. You know, yeah. I, they wanted to strike the middle ground and I'm pretty sure they they hit the middle ground. So um, that's where we're at. 
Sounds like a great bike. Jess McKinley just got back from the uh, the Norden 901 Husqvarna. Yeah. And uh, he was, I mean, that sounds really impressive too. So obviously that's a, a bigger bike, got a lot more punch than the sort of 900 versus 660. Yeah. The thing with that bike, I basically think that the Aprilia fits between the Yamaha and the Husqvarna because the Husqvarna has lesser suspension than the Adventure R and it's a little bit more touring oriented. Right. Yep. So it's, I haven't ridden that bike. <clears throat> I always kind of forget about it because it's so new, but um, yeah, I mean, the Aprilia's conquest model was the Yamaha and they were like, we're going to kill that thing. And like, we're not even going to bother with the KTM, like just as an anecdote. Right. They, um, they had the 890 Adventure R as a test bike and the test riders rode it for like two weeks and they're like, we're done with this. We don't need it. Right. Because they're like, it's too, it's too off-road. It's just, this, this thing is a fucking gnarly dirt bike. Like we don't, right. <laughs> yeah. and it is having ridden that thing off-road, the 792, it's incredible off-road, but on the street, you're like, oh man, you get a lot of like fidgeting and it feels like a gigantic, heavy, incredibly fast dual sport. And you're like, I don't really like this. But then you take it off road and you're like, oh, fuck. Yeah, if you're, if you're in an all round type situation, you cannot expect to excel in any one area. Yeah. You either have to decide that your bike is an all rounder or you're going to excel as a street bike or, or as an off road bike. And, and if you get that level of commitment, then it's going to suffer somewhere else. Yeah. So, uh, but it sounds actually it sounds like the Norden is a fantastic compromise. It also sounds as though this Aprilia is too. Sounds great. All right. Hey, I appreciate your observations as always. Thank you so much. Okay, cool. Take care. All right. See ya. If you're interested in engineering or design, you'll likely enjoy this next segment. Neil Bailey chats with Brian Case about the genesis of his brainchild, Motus Motorcycles. The story behind the all-American-made, amazing V4 motor and the great handling, comfortable chassis that it fitted into is absolutely fascinating. 200 Motus Motorcycles were made, and those machines and the company he built are a credit to not just Brian's amazing design talents, but also his tenacity and ability to get things done. This is your present position, but it's been a very interesting journey in your career in the motorcycle industry to bring you to here, and one that's actually been very tied to the Barber Museum. So let's go back 17, 18 years to when you were a young industrial designer working for a boutique custom motorcycle brand in Louisiana before you even knew the Barbara Museum existed. Yeah, well, it has, it has been slightly interesting, right? Uh, this, um, this place that we're in today, uh, the, the Barbara Museum, has uh, been a really special place um, for me personally. And uh, it's, uh, it's just kind of always been there. Like, like I said, it's, uh, it's been here for 18 years. and. Uh, the first time I walked through the doors uh, was in 2004 uh, when I was working um, for this, this boutique bike maker. And uh, You'd originally started in Louisiana, but I guess Hurricane Katrina moved you here. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. The Katrina um, wiped everything out down there. So 
you know, in the nationwide search of, of trying to move that company, they were a client of mine. Uh, I was living in Pittsburgh. I had a design firm there. And, uh, you know, I was kind of part of this, this search to help, you know, resurrect this company that had lost everything. And uh, one of those cities um, proposed to us was, the, uh, was, was Birmingham. And uh, uh, with a personal invitation from, from Mr. Barber. So I fly down uh, from Pittsburgh and uh, I had not traveled to Alabama much in my life. I, I grew up born and raised in, in Pittsburgh and uh, never really had a reason to, to come to Alabama. I drove through it on the way to New Orleans several times, knew where Birmingham was, but didn't know much about it. I knew it was the uh, you know, the steel city of the South, so to speak, um, you know, with roots going back to Pittsburgh, uh, you know, the original steel city. So I immediately fell in love with Birmingham coming down here and visiting, um, and all of these kind of personal connections just to, uh, my own, my own city of Pittsburgh. So yeah, it was uh, really an interesting time in my life and, uh, just, you know, getting, uh, kind of a foothold in, um, the industrial design, um, industry and uh, seeing how motorcycles kind of shaped my path there and it kind of just came out of nowhere I just all of a sudden overnight realized I really like designing motorcycles this could be something so uh, so yeah came down to Birmingham and um, of course uh, you know Mr. Barber and his whole executive team and the folks here at the museum rolled out the red carpet and um, were unbelievable very gracious hosts, just showing the whole city of Birmingham, really, you know, uh, they were, they were helped selling the whole state uh, of Alabama. So, um, that, that had a lasting impact on me for sure. Um, I immediately moved to Birmingham. Uh, so I was here, uh, feet on the ground in, uh, January of 2006 and, um, yeah, just packed up my whole life and moved here. I'm just trying to think that we had met in New Orleans. That's right. In That's right. oh, 2004. So same year. Yeah. Same year. Yeah. Um, this was all kind of a, just like a, you know, tornado of, of activity that year. Well, so. and, and in this very serendipitous world, you know, obviously this podcast is for Ultimate Motorcycling, owned and published Arthur Colwell's. If it hadn't been for Arthur Colwell's sending me <laughs> to New Orleans, uh, to do a story for his publication, we wouldn't have met. Yes, I, I remember that that day. I mean, it was like mm. you were there and sort of like deer in the headlights from, you know, more traditional motorcycle industry media, and you're plopped into the this little boutique company <laughs> in New Orleans, like, yeah. what is this about? And, uh, and that's when, that's when we met. So, uh, you were coming at it from your world and I was coming at it from mm. my world and, uh, the, it just, we just kind of orbited around this thing that, uh, changed my life. For sure. But interestingly enough, then that kept us in orbit because while you were initially in Birmingham, we had gone to Daytona on a number of projects with the company and sort of cemented, uh, friendship at that point yeah for sure. and then in your chronology you left them to go back on your own and i remember distinctly walking into i mean this is like the story two men walk into a bar right yeah. and 
we walked her into a bar in Birmingham, Alabama. It was the early part of 2008. And of course, I'm gibbering on about, hey, I want to start a TV show. And you're like, I want to build my own motorcycle. And I always think if anyone was listening to those two idiots in that bar. <laughs> yeah, too bad we didn't have a podcast going on in that bar of the hotel. Uh, but yeah, I just had a sketch at that point. Well, you I know? remember you, you came in on your monster. Mm-hmm. You took off your satchel and you brought out your sketch pad. And actually, people can still look at those early motor drawings now. I remember you showing me the, the bike. I remember us talking about how the luggage could move to be a sport bike. And, you know, I didn't realize in that moment, I mean, history was getting set to be made because you went on and chased that idea. Well, it, I, I don't know if anyone really knows how steep the mountain is going to be. And at that point, I didn't, I didn't know. I just knew that I wanted to do something different. And at that point, I, I used this museum as my research library. But this right? is the biggest part, because if you hadn't been coming to this museum, I mean, specifically for the Motus, you had a V4 American muscle. You wanted to go with sort of this tried and tested DNA. You don't want to reinvent the wheel, but you wanted something unique. But that all really came from being here. The ability to walk through these floors and witness almost every significant machine uh, made in the history and evolution of motorcycles, of two wheel, that's this whole two wheel journey. There's 155 years of motorcycle evolution in this building. And you can walk through and witness everything, the successes, the failures, the wins, the losses, and I sat here through that time, this transition of what, what am I going to do with my life? I'm going to just start sketching. And I looked at everything in this building. And all of that went into what the modus became. Hmm. That was inspiration. And so this, this story is relevant because that's what I'm doing now with the design center is letting other designers know around the world, hey, come here. And use this as inspiration. It's a it's a tremendous gem of a resource uh, to be able to stand right next to all these machines and use that as input. Do you remember what was if there was one specific piece of information that said to you, "I'm going to build a pushrod V4 American Muscle engine"? What was there something specific, or did it just arrive? Something specific. Um, I think it was born out of frustration, and it was probably an evolution. It wasn't one real one defining thing, but um, at the tail end of quote unquote the chopper industry. Well, right? we had, so we've been so saturated yes, with 2005 America. was like really the peak, right? Um, so it was trying to you know resurrect and go through you know a couple iterations, you know mid 2000s, right? So I'm kind of coming out of that world of um, the custom bike scene and being very self-reflective. Like, what, what does this all mean? Where are we going with this? So as a designer, I'm thinking, like, what's next? Um, and I had more of a sporty, you know, sport bike background. I like, you know, I had, a, like I said, I, you know, I had a monster at the time. I mean, that was my ideal motorcycle, you know, um, brutal, raw, naked, and so I was thinking, well, you know, I don't want to design another sport bike with a air-cooled 
V-twin in it, you know? So what else can I do? So I'm using this museum as, as my influence, you know? What, what are all the engine designs out there? And uh, so that just kind of all went into what became the Modus V4. Um, it was slightly different, but yet not too far of a departure from known ingenuity at the time. It was based on American muscle car engine architecture. Um, so how hard could that be? You know, so that's, that's what I used. As so that's why you went to Detroit, to K-Tech. Well, Detroit at the time, I mean, Motor City, right? So um, Detroit, um, you know, was open for business. This is 2008. So there right? was a particularly interesting time in, from an industrial build perspective, because people were needing business. I mean, they, would they have looked at you perhaps if things had been going swimmingly? I mean, they were no, suffering no chance. at the time. No yeah. chance. It was, it was the low point of uh, American manufacturing, and um, we heard that all over the place. The companies were just trying to keep the lights on and keep the machines running. They're just sitting there idle. And so we went to um, some folks in Detroit that very much needed the business at the time. And so they, um, they took it on, you know, and in, in uh, less than a year, um, we were able to get my sketch of an engine design into a running engine making smoke in the dyno, less than a year. So in layman's terms, you cut a V8 in half, bolted up your proprietary gearbox and went, but it was a little bit more complex than that. Yeah. Slightly, yes, yeah. Um, yeah, it, it was a clean sheet engine design, but it was based, the concept was based on um, known engine architecture at the time from a variety of sources, you know, um, mainly the American small block engine, whatever that may be, you know, uh, but that, uh, that raw push rod, you know, 90 degree V architecture. And um, that was really the design brief because think about it, um, making a new American motorcycle, um, you know, you could name the other brands on one hand, you know, so um, what most people around the world think of as an American motorcycle is just a couple of brands. Um, mm. And one of those being Harley-Davidson. You know, and always usually a V-twin. Yeah. yeah, so V-twin architecture is inherently um, known as American. So, Interesting. Let me jump in, in something before I slip here. You know, Interesting enough, as, so as you are designing the engine, okay, in parallel, you have now moved into the incubator. That's right, yeah. Which, again, is a Mr. Barber idea that was specifically, I mean, it was a, what, an old it was, it was a It was a Sears Roebuck. It was the downtown, at one time, it was like one of the most beautiful Sears Roebuck stores in the country. Um, so this was a, um, you know, a vacant building, um, and um, this this idea came about through the local university, um, um, University of Alabama at Birmingham, uh, and their tech transfer program um, to repurpose this this building. And so, uh, through an arrangement, uh, you know, with um, the Barber companies, they turned over this building for this use, and it became known as Innovation Depot. And it's a tech incubator, so it's a you know big, huge building where companies could make their start and share some common resources, business advice, guidance, and um, you know common building. So 
it was just perfect timing for our little concept startup company to get a dedicated office space and get it out of the out of the den out of the woodshed and make it real you know and we <laughs> needed that little that little kick of getting up out of bed and going to a place it's um, a, but it's another thread in that tapestry of mr barber and this whole story because sure, yeah. this is his his vision again to help it's 08, businesses are struggling, there's a property that's not being used, so he puts it to use by helping small businesses. Yeah, and there's, there was all kinds of companies in there, mostly biotech, healthcare. Uh, we were the only motorcycle company in there, you know. Um, so once we got up to a point where we were starting to make smoke, uh, we quickly looked at, a, at a, what became our first factory. You know, so we moved out, we graduated from the incubator program um, so we had a sound business case, and we had a prototype, and we moved out, moved into a space that we leased um, again from um, from Mr. Barber. Um, but you had which, transitioned through a bigger incubator space. You went from the small one to the that's right. Bigger we moved, one. Yeah, we moved within a couple times inside the space. Yeah, and so we were. I did the clay model in that space. Um, I did, you know, we were building prototypes in there. We, we had full working running bikes in that incubator space. And you also had done a big reveal of the motor, but only privately at this time. Yeah, we did a couple, you know, there's circling around all this, this with the Barber Museum. There were several times that, you know, we felt the need to kind of gain the support uh, and the appreciation of what we were doing, the, almost the validation. Like, are we, you know, we looked at the Barber Museum as kind of the uh, the source, right? The knowledge base. If if we could impress these guys, then we were on to something. Mm -hmm. So we constantly reached back out and said, "Hey, we're doing this thing. We're going to show the motor. We're going to you know, show off the bike, do a press launch." So, but there is don't... there is a certain element here that none of this is public at this point. None of it. No. No, yeah, we didn't. We weren't public until uh, 2011, which was actually Bike Week, which we can get. Yes, to. Yeah. yeah. So this was all under wraps, you know, from 08, 09, 10, um, and then the prototypes uh, that we built with Pratt and Miller uh, in 2011. So, uh, you know, the bodywork of the first prototypes was going on in January and February of 2011, and um, we threw those bikes in a van and drove straight to Daytona? Well, I think, you know, one of my favorite um, pictures or pieces of memorabilia in my office is a picture from what you deemed the first ride that we did sure. here in yeah. Birmingham on that bitterly cold day. That was such a crazy time. Um, Bondaranko did all the still yeah. pictures and we actually, we actually rode the prototypes around the streets of Boone, but at that point they had the direct injection with no real mapping. There was oh, yeah. time I mean, delays on the Bendix and these were what we very called crude. Frankenstein bikes at the time. I mean, go back and look at some of these pictures of that time. It was absolutely bananas. No sleep, Red Bull, you name it. Um, <laughs> probably have to pay Red Bull for that, I don't know. But uh, yeah, it was whatever energy source I could put in my body to just stay going. 
Um, I mean, it was just nuts. And it was, I, was um, just, I mean, you were with us. It well, was, I was older than I never could really quite finish a full motus. A full motus. <laughs> yes. I would always leave somewhere in the middle yeah. of the uh, country and just disappear. Uh, f uh, for anyone who doesn't know, a full motus is, uh, starts with, I don't know, like a four or five day bender of no sleep, uh, show after show, uh, prepping bikes. Uh, non-stop around the clock and putting on a smile and turning the camera on and and uh, we did that so many times um, that that was that time that was that was 2011 and uh, man that trip just from Detroit we did the the private unveiling at Pratt Miller in their building and uh, and that was March 2nd of 2011 uh, put the bikes in a van that we had just bought. Uh, we just bought the van to be able to even get the van uh, to get the bikes um, down to Birmingham. So we show up in Birmingham. We do an unveiling at Innovation Depot, and then we do another one in the museum in the Grand Atrium, and invited the whole city. And the Birmingham News was there, and the mayor was there, and uh, all the barber folks were there. It was just amazing. Um, could barely stand up. I mean, just so little sleep at that point. I was talking <laughs> gibberish and, you know, our families are there. And, and it was uh, it was a great time. And it was the official pull the red sheet off the bike. We've made it. We we thought we were on the top of the world and we did something. And here it is. And little did we know. You just got uh, to the foot of the mountain. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. You hadn't even made it to the start line. You know, it's interesting because the bike was obviously revealed to the public. There were two bikes. One was the silver one, which was set up to look like how the finished bike would yes, be. Show bike and the full runner. And yeah. then there was the other one, which was the full runner. You know, it's so easy to look back at 2011 now and say, wow, what a mistake that was. Because when that silver bike arrived at Daytona and then the other bike with all of the computer stuff, there were two real takeaways. One, everybody thought it was ready to buy. Yeah. It looked like a production bike. It didn't look like a prototype. Yes, that's in yeah. In hindsight, um, you have amazing vision. But this is ten years ago now, right? So 2011 is when we launched the brand uh, for the first time, um, and the silver prototype was so good because of the partners we had involved. That's just the level of work they do. You know, they don't do anything half-assed. It was. It was over the top. Uh, I mean, we're talking like a $7,000 paint job. It was just, it was so good that people thought, great, when can I buy it? I'm ready right now. Uh, I'm ready to work out financing. Let, let, you know, what are the colors that come in? And we had none of that. We were not ready for that. Uh, it, <laughs> and... We thought there would be a few years of uh, get, you know, allowing time for us to kind of uh, evolve this. But no, people were ready right then to slap money down. And so we started signing up dealers and all this stuff, but we were years away from production. But yeah, so it's hard to say in, in hindsight, mm. you go back, would we have done it differently? Probably not because we did what we had to do. You know, we funded the whole thing on a shoestring. So yeah. one principle that we, we prided ourselves on in, from the beginning was kind of build it first, you know, and then talk about it. You know, so we never really released any of my concept drawings, very little stuff. Well, it was the first time the world saw it, it yeah. was Bike Week 2011. We and never the thing talked is, we, about what we had been we were... talking. 
going to do. We would just do it, and then we would raise a little bit more money. Yeah. yeah. I mean, since spring of 08, three years, basically in the woodshed, technically. In the woodshed, yeah. A few little leaks here and there. Like, uh, I remember MCN got wind of it. So, of course, they had to print something, and it was... Um, I think it was just like one of my really loose sketches. It's just like, this is coming, new American V4. That was it. We did not try to push anything out because um, we didn't want to be seen as one of those um, vaporware companies that was never going to make something. We wanted to make it, and it needed to make smoke and run before we released anything. So I remember the video being filmed in Detroit. Uh, we uh, went out on a back road right outside of Pratt Miller and we shot some video and GoPro and we dropped that video and that was it. It was just like, this is, a, this is about to, to break loose. And we had been testing for a solid year. We've been running that bike all over Detroit. I mean, um, hundreds of thousands of miles in the saddle testing those prototype bikes um, nonstop. It was just, it was nuts. So the journey, so we left Bike Week. Um, I remember we had the big house on the water and we had a lot of the world's journalists came in. Somehow Scott Russell poisoned. Russell. Yeah, you called him. He just showed up. He pulls in <laughs> like sideways on his, uh, what do you have, like a 450 or something? A, something. a super motor, yeah. like just like coming in. He was over at the track. He comes in, hangs out at the, the house on the beach. And uh, he was all about it. You know, that was great. Um, you know, uh, encouragement at that point from, you know, Mr. Mr. Daytona. Himself. And the reaction that we got all across Daytona that year was quite phenomenal. But so the journey from prototypes get released to the world in March of 2011. Yeah, yeah. And then the next journey was to get from there to the pre-production prototypes, right? That's right. Yeah. So we, we rode the prototypes around, um, you know, and these were million dollar prototypes i mean they were they were piles yes yes so much design and engineering went into just those bikes the proof of concept bikes and like you said it was just the starting line we we hadn't even done production validation yet so from 2011 uh, all the way up until our production you know first pre-production validation bikes which was 2013 so two solid years of going back to the drawing board and uh, evolving the prototype designs into viable production designs. That was really the bulk of the design and engineering work. Uh, it makes the previous three years look easy, but uh, taking the engine for you know itself, it was a clean sheet engine design, so everything had to, we had to go through everything. We had a really good team at that point, um, some really good design engineers, um, you know, that, uh, brought a lot of input to a production engine the castings the you know um, all of the ribbing and you know if you look at the prototype pictures to the production pictures are completely different engines there was a couple of significant things from prototype to those pre-productions one being the change from direct injection to conventional injection and then secondly was the gearbox noise that played you for quite some time was one of the biggest headaches on the whole project motor wise right yeah i mean that's really comes down to sourcing right mm. so from prototype where you are just getting whatever you can to get a, a functioning model 
um, there wasn't a lot of thought. There wasn't a, a ton of thought to production sourcing when we were doing prototypes. It was, um, there was a little bit there, but not until we were faced with direct injection, that final decision of like, are we going to go forward with this? Which at the time in Detroit was being pioneered there. They had used it in racing. It got banned. Uh, so direct injection was becoming well known in the automotive four-wheel space. Um, and we were trying to adapt it into the two-wheel space. And so we had it running on a four-stroke combustion engine on the first motorcycle. So we thought it was really cool. But in reality, when we started talking about sourcing, how are we going to actually make this work for our production volumes, it kept coming back to um, the, the suppliers and uh, where we're going to get the ECU. It really came down to the ECU. The ECU to run that system was like three grand. You know, so it just, it didn't make financial sense. We had to abandon it. And uh, the end result is um, through our production design partners, uh, we were able to come up with a, just a standard EFI, you know, uh, standard injection system that was cleaner and more efficient than what we thought we were developing in the first place. So it, it worked out for the better. And EFI is also a known commodity. You know, mm -hmm. we, we fully understand it at this point. Electronics were easier to source and, and so on. But that is kind of what set the tone for production design. Uh, then everything came down to cost and what can we get the final bill of materials down to. And at the end of the day, it was costing us money to make every one of those bikes. We mm -hmm. still couldn't at the you know, the last final year of production, it was still costing us money to, um, to put a bike together. And it mm -hmm. just doesn't work. I know that, you know, in the process of going from prototype to production, there's probably a hundred stories about each individual component. And we could probably spend the rest of the week on that. But the one that sticks out in my mind coming and going was the gearbox issue with the wine in the gearbox and the fact that you had to go to England for Formula One technology. Yeah, there was, yeah. I mean, it was um, a big we, problem we had some, you, right? Yeah, yeah, we had some really good um, partners on powertrain and uh, the transfer of power from the back of the, the engine to the final drive um, was a huge challenge because we're taking, one, we're starting with this unruly uh odd fire 90 degree v4 uh with a 1.6 liter displacement it's a massive engine and we're trying to turn all that power and uh you know uh violent torsional vibration at the back of the crank so it's a it's like a giant rubber band it's just you know bang a bang bang a bang so it had this really unique unique uh signature to the note uh, but that also sends a lot of challenges down the line you know mm -hmm. so what we wanted was this unique sound and character to the bike which it has but you've got to dampen those vibrations somehow and so it became a really good challenge and we had uh, some students involved um, over in the UK that used it as part of their their you know senior project and um, um, through some folks at, uh, at Cosworth and we had uh, let's see, Ricardo involved and um, so kind of all over the place to try to 
solve this challenge of what I believe at the time were like 900, you know, foot pound torque signatures coming out of the out of the back of the crank. So huge spikes. And um, so did these things call, cause delays in delivery? Sure. Oh yeah. yeah, big time delays. And because we had to get it right, and uh, you know, the 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 sound and the character that we had already heard was was important. You know, so. Uh, it was worth it to us, and uh, if I recall, we went through about 19 different iterations of a of a tuned damper unit that goes between the, you know, what companies usually have that have like a you know a longitudinal crank design or a boxer engine. They have these damper units. So we we went through uh, a bunch of different iterations to solve that challenge, and what we ultimately came up with was something that works in the dyno. It doesn't get rid of all the sound, um, but when you think about what you're trying to contain there, which is this large, unruly animal uh, with straight-cut gears, uh, you know, the sound is what it what it was. And in tandem, of course, at this time you were putting on tens, if not hundreds, of thousands of development miles. Right? Yeah, so I mean, you're running was, bikes around the clock as well. That's right. Our goal was uh, durability. You know, we wanted something that would not destroy the the entire drivetrain down the line. So we were, our number one goal was to um, maintain the life of the machine and and cancel out as much of the torsional vibrations as possible. Our number one goal was not sound, you know. So we were solving for uh, durability, and um, and so we achieved that. And yeah, there was there was uh, there was a bit of a time delay. Probably not the biggest time delay. The biggest time delay was um, EPA, you know, getting getting emissions uh, squared away, or we couldn't, we weren't allowed to go to production. You know, we wouldn't be able to sell anything if we didn't get approved at a federal level and uh, and California. You know, and we we knew we were going to have dealers in California, so we had to go through about a year of testing and uh, paperwork to get the official EPA and CARB certificate to be able to sell machines. So we, our first machine came off the line in 2014. We donated it to the museum here. So number one is in the permanent collection here. And uh, we weren't able to send a bike to a dealer until uh, spring of 2015. Yeah. Was there another release here at the museum on that first bike? The first bike, yes, we had a big uh, ceremony uh, in 2014 um, for the Vintage Fest. So we came back, and over the years, we would always kind of use Vintage Fest here at the museum as our um, launch pad, you know, to release the latest news. And mm. and that was that year, October of 2014, we had our first production build. This has now been uh, through all of the validation. So from 2013 through 2014 we had been riding all over the country on pre-production bikes uh, there was a, a fleet of five bikes and we had test riders some former uh, you know harley davidson test riders who lived right here in alabama because they did all their testing at talladega so uh, when they moved that facility out west uh, we hired some of those guys to ride around the clock that was another connection for me too because Eric Alger came to ride for you. 
And yeah. he'd been a young man when I worked in Florida in yeah. the early 90s. Yeah. I'd known him a long time. Yeah, so these guys, they would clock in in the morning, mm -hmm. we'd put them on a bike, and they'd come back at, in the evening, and they were just running all the time. So those, those were on pre-production validation bikes. So we're testing every component that we had now sourced that was sitting on the shelves, and we were, and we were putting miles on. Do you remember how many miles got ridden in those days? Could I you? don't. No. Uh, lots and lots and lots mm -hmm. of miles, as much as we possibly could. You know, and that was what it was about. We'd go so far, and then we'd run into a challenge. We'd have to reset and go back. And uh, it was all trying to break the bikes as much as possible and um, mm. validating the, the, the components that we had sourced. And going back to design, uh, we made it slightly easy on ourselves by choosing, making, you know, wise decisions at the time not to reinvent the wheel and um, source components that were already, in a sense, validated. For instance, um, like an Olin suspension, you know. Um, we weren't going to go try to make a better suspension than Olin. So we sourced really good components from existing brands, uh, Brembo brakes. and um, We had our hands full with powertrain design, which in itself is an assembly of components that had a lot of proven architecture on them. You know, some of these components that would be sourced by like GM or, who, you know, big automotive uh, companies do a lot of testing on those components. So that helps in a lot of ways. Interesting that really along through this journey, too, is you know, this was a, a project that Mr. Barber was always very fascinated in. I know that he was a huge fan. Yeah. He specifically would come every Vintage Fest to the Motors area to see the bike. I've got numerous pictures of him with you and the bike. And he really, really enjoyed the process. So he? what I learned about Mr. Barber in that time frame is that he lights up when he sees ingenuity and creativity. And he wants more of it. He just wants to ignite that, that fuse and, and spark this energy. And he does it everywhere he goes. It wasn't just for us. Um, he, that's what he built this building for. He wants people to walk in here and light up with enjoyment like they had when they were a kid and just see things that spark that energy. And he very much was that, um, that very loud supporter of what we were doing at the time. And, uh, I know a lot of people think he was like involved in it or anything. It wasn't anything like that. He it was, was more of an emotional interest. Very much so. Yeah. Just to have him say the words like, I believe in you. I believe in what you're doing. It's good and it's important. Keep doing it. Go after it. That's all we ever needed. Mm. We just needed to hear that from somebody. And when he says something like that, you know, it's, it has tremendous weight. Um, and I see that all over the place now. And so that really leads to the design center. Because what, yeah. sort of capping the motors journey, you know, obviously 200 motorcycles are produced, number one and number 200 are here in the museum. That's right. And then, you know, you take off for greener pastures after motors and the phone rings, it's Mr. Barber. And this, this all of these, this 17 year journey of coming here, sketching, designing, interacting, it's suddenly, it's, it, it's well, I'll tell you what, the, I'll never forget that phone call, uh, hopefully for the rest of my life, because it immediately clicked. It was just like, how can I help? Mm. What, what can I do for you? It was an immediate no-brainer, because 
everything came back to the museum. The museum is what made Modus what it was. That inspiration, the ability for me to walk through these halls and get all of that input is what led me to that design. And now here he is himself asking me to give him input. Um, and it was just unbelievable. Just like, uh, where do I sign up? You know, uh, how, how, yeah. So, um, and in that point, that was two years ago. So mm. I don't know at that time, didn't know it was going to lead to this. Mm. You know, it was just, it's just creativity. And another thing I've, I've come to really admire about Mr. Barber and the way he thinks is he loves a blank canvas. And that's what this park is. That's what this whole property is. It was a blank canvas and he threw some color down and it's, it's like an abstract painting. And that's the way I believe he thinks. He just throws some color down and he changes and he's very fluid and he doesn't stay so locked in that he's not open to new ideas. And that's, that's abstract expressionism uh, at its finest. And so when he proposed this to me, like, what can we do? You know, he didn't want to constrain me too much. And at this point, I'm, I'm meeting with the whole executive team. And um, it was very loose. It was like an abstract painting. Let's just throw some color down here, see where this takes us. So how that all evolved into the Barber Advanced Design Center, I don't know. But that's what, that's what we're doing. And now we're inspiring kids and we're bringing school groups through here and they're seeing these things for the first time in their lives and they're saying, wow, I could do that for a living? Like, tell me how, how to do this. So it's, a, it's kind of a bolt-on component to the museum because as you walk through here, you see the history of all these machines. And then when you get to the design center, you learn about what led to that history. What, how did all these machines get developed? Who were the designers? How did the engineers take a sketch and turn it into a pattern and go to a foundry and cast an engine? So we're going to tell the whole story of design and engineering and expose those disciplines as, to as many people as we can through the lens of the museum. I think um, this actually is a good place to take a pause on this conversation because it sort of explains how you got here um, and your history through MOTUS. And then, of course, the big subject at the moment now is the initial project that the Design Center is doing, the Mono Project, with world-famous Ducati designer Pierre de Blanche. And the cool thing is Pierre will be here with us inside a month or two. And maybe because the Mono Project is the first big project for the Design Center. Perhaps we could pause this and have Pierre pick this up for us, what the Design Center yeah. is working on at the moment. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that because that will, when he's here, you know, that will really kind of put the book in to that project. And uh, uh, he's, he's working uh, to get back over here mm -hmm. uh, from South Africa. So that'll be great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, do you have any sort of personal things that you'd like to wrap up with on the motors, the journey being here, or are you just uh, happy? I just think it's, it's just amazing. Um, you know, when I think back 
about that journey, uh, the ups and the downs, the you know, the 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 blood, sweat, and tears. Right? Yeah. Uh, it's just amazing um, that I find myself here and giving back in a way uh, and telling the story of design and what designers have to think about, you know, and, uh, you know, and I'm reaching out to friends and colleagues all over the world um, and getting their input too, which is great uh, because Barber is, it's a museum, you know, and it's, uh, it's like uh, Switzerland. It's like neutral ground. So we can, it's like a playing field for design, right? So I just think it's, uh, you know, it's been an amazing journey so far, but um, very much looking forward to this, this next trip. So the best is yet to come. Yeah, for sure.